Germany's beleaguered defense minister has temporarily dropped his PhD Hey, this is Ted. Hi, it's Michelle. Welcome back to Spaßbremse. We're back here from a, a little Sommerpause when things slowed down a bit, and we're excited to bring you some great new episodes. What you're listening to now will be part one of a back-to-back transport series. Um, we we're going to have another episode coming out soon on an alternate form of transport uh, other than this one today. So, <laughs> that's, that's okay. we got to get the we're suspense. We're talking about trains. We've got to get the suspense going. <laughs> oh, it's trying, to, it's trying to have a little cliffhanger here. Yeah. So... Yeah, th- thanks a lot for your patience uh, throughout the summer months. We're excited to be back in full force. And today we are talking all about trains, as Michelle spoiled. Uh, we got a phenomenal guest, John Worth, who uh, is quite the quite the expert on this. Um, before we get started, we just do want to say thank you for listening. And to those of you who support us on Patreon, thanks extra. Thanks the same, but extra. A little extra. I think that's <laughs> thing it's fair to say. Okay. Um, we have a lot of great episodes behind the paywall on Germany's borders, the Mittelstand. Um, we just did one on Mallorca. If you're missing that summary. That island vibe. <laughs> And lots more. So go check that out if you can. Uh, the link is in the show description. In today's episode, Ted talks to John Worth, who writes all about European rail and is also based in Berlin, actually. Um, in the interview, they go into a lot of detail about EU rail overall and, of course, about the rail woes in Germany as well. I think anyone who's been around this summer in Germany will find the typical complaints relatable and Ted and John kind of get into the causes of some of that. Yeah, exactly. And then to, to sort of close out, we also address you know the, the hot topic in German public transportation at the moment, the now dead nine euro ticket, uh, this being the first week of September. We are uh, we've been struggling through a few days without our, our glorious nine euro ticket for for anyone. Um, I'm pretty sure everyone listening will know what that is. But basically, for three months, June to August, we had unlimited travel on regional and local trains. The government has let it expire. There, there have actually been a couple updates on this and the sort of efforts to resurrect it in some form or another since we recorded with John. So just to update that in the intro here before we cut to the interview, the negotiations in the Ampel Coalition um, have progressed a little bit. Um, the, the FDP finally seems like they, they came on board. And so there's a proposal to get a new nine euro ticket, but for the price of between 49 and 69, but it's sort of acquired a brand. So people still call it the nine euro ticket, even if it costs a lot more than that. The greens are pushing for that lower end. Um, but yeah, it's been good, you know, relatively good, I guess, at least the, the FDP uh, transport minister uh, Vissing he agreed to do it in principle at some price. Um, it'll be on the lower end. <laughs> wow, at some price. Well, I no, but in in, the, in that range at least. Like it's you know they they were sort of holding out. Um, yeah, and it'll be it'll be lower, of course, if the states help fund it. This is obviously the the, the federal government um, doing these negotiations, but they're trying to get the states to buy in a bit. Of course, 
our dear friends in uh, car-loving and conservative Bayan are not too keen on this. So just quoting from, what is this, Bayerische Rundfunk, um, they say, Bavaria does not want to spend any money on such a model, even if the federal government will contribute billions. A spokesperson for the Bavarian Ministry of Transport told the German press agency, the DPA, that if the government wants that, the government has to finance it. And so, yeah, Transport Minister Christian Bahnreiter of the CSU, good old CSU, has emphasized for, that further relief should, quote, exclusively be carried by the federal government with, um, in terms of the nine euro ticket. So um, that's annoying. I saw John actually like, tweeted this just recently. He was like, well, that's fine. Uh, why don't we just do a nine euro ticket and uh, Bavaria is excluded? Like, you know, they don't want in. They're not in. Finally secede. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. They can secede from the transport union, the the, re- the, the Regiobahn union. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like you said, it's a bit annoying to maybe say the least, but not at all unexpected from those those. Goons. <laughs> those those BMW loving. Um, but the, yeah, this is kind of a part of this whole energy package that's been being discussed. Other things that have been kind of thrown out there are a break on the electricity, on the price of electricity, some sort of one-off payments for students and retirees, and a bunch of others. It's kind of very unclear what... Yeah. Is gonna come. Yeah, they're they're adding things in, and the idea is that this will be financed with uh, basically a windfall tax on the the insane profits of some of these energy companies that have jacked up their prices and are making a killing lately. Um, but we'll kind of do a more in depth update on the energy crisis in Europe soon, since a lot has happened in the last months, and we've got a great guest lined up for that, so that should be a lot of fun. But. Back to a small piece of that, Back just to, yeah. helping people cope with insane fossil fuel prices um, by hopefully taking trains more reliably and affordably. Um, yeah, see if that's actually feasible to do so reliably at all. Yeah, let's hear from John Worth. All right, let's do it. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Spaßbremse. I'm joined here by a great guest. We've got uh, John Worth here to talk about the state of European rail. And as well, of course, we'll talk about Germany in particular and the Deutsche Bahn, which you might know has been having a, a bit of a tough summer so far. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> totally the right way of putting it. Anyway, thank you uh, for the <laughs> yeah, so This will come out in early September, so so maybe uh, maybe the, the summer of... The summer of discontent on the on the German rails will be over by then, but but yeah, there's the, there's a lot to talk about on this front, and John's been uh, been embarking on uh, a pretty exciting project to explore the the state of European rail. So, John, could you just uh, say a little bit about yourself, how you got um, so interested in the state of EU rail, um, and maybe a little bit about this project that you've started. Right. Okay. Thank you. So um, I'm a British originally, but I've been living in Germany now for some years um, and I'm self-employed. I'm a communications consultant and trainer by background. I'm not really a railway person or wasn't originally anyway. And I traveled from Berlin to a, basically a bunch of European countries very regularly. And you start to ask yourself the question, hey, hang on a minute. 
why is this so complicated? And why do things break down when you take a train Europe-wide? And so that was the kind of first motivation. I basically needed this to work because for my work uh, contracts, when I go to Belgium or Netherlands or Italy or Switzerland from Germany, the places I go quite often, you start to realize, actually, when you cross a border by train in Europe, everything gets harder. The trains run less often. Even getting a ticket can be quite complicated. And then I started to look with my kind of EU hat on at who's really working to try to fix this. And we have a very national, a series of national debates in Europe about railways. The French talk about their problems on their railways. The Germans talk about their problems in their railways. But very few people are trying to say, hey, hang on a minute, we need to fix this Europe-wide. And so out of that have come a number of different campaigning activities I've been running um, over the last uh, couple of years, starting initially with a focus on the absence of night trains in Europe. And then also then this project, which we mo mostly want to talk about in this podcast today, which is my project called Cross Border Rail, where I crossed every internal border of the EU that you can cross by train in one massive trip. And then in the places where the trains don't run any longer, which were quite many, actually, um, I took a folding bicycle with me. So I would then uh, hop on the bicycle and cross the border by bike in the places where the trains no longer run. Uh, and so that was the project. So, of course, I started from Germany for many of the routes. So I can happily talk about many of Germany's borders. But then I went pretty much everywhere. I went as far as the top of the Baltic Sea, uh, at the border between Finland and Sweden. I went as far southwest as Lisbon and as far southeast as Athens. So I've seen pretty much every part of the European Union you can basically cover by train uh, in this project um, over the course of the summer. Yeah, and so this was, um, you know, I'm a, a rail enthusiast myself, nowhere near uh, quite the level of John, but I, and, you know, I'm, I'm actually currently recording this from, from Greece and took the train all the way down here, or at least as much as you possibly can, um, as we'll get into some of the uh, there's a couple, a couple lacking legs of the entire journey there from, from Berlin. And just uh, to sort of uh, add some context for, for why you might be interested in this, right? When you travel for work, you basically refuse to travel by plane. So this is not Very only a, not only an intellectual interest, but a real practical one for your life. Yeah, it's a combination. Because also, I, I'm politically committed to this. We all need to fly less, basically. Yeah. And so to me, it's kind of a personal sort of vocation, which is to say, can I actually literally do this? Can I actually make these sorts of connections work? And also, sometimes for some of my clients, it's been a hard task. I get clients of mine that, that, that say, which flight can we book for you, Mr. Worth? And my response normally is, yeah, these are the trains I'd like you to book for me, please. And the corporate travel agent comes back to me and says, ah, sorry, we can't do that. And in most cases, I then say, okay, well, will you let me book all of those trains for you? And then you may be, may be able to reimburse me. Now, Let's take a step away from that, right? Most people are not going to go. I have done like work trips from Berlin as far as Yash in Romania by train, right? That took me 48 hours to get there. Most people are not going to be that committed. But what's really, really important is the type of trips on like train trips are something between four and six hours in particular. The type of trip where the train is time competitive with the plane it should be just as easy to go from Frankfurt to Paris and make that just as normal for a business trip as it is to go from Frankfurt to Berlin. Now, most Germans would go, okay, Frankfurt to Berlin, okay, they might have problems with Deutsche Bahn or it might break down or something. But at least the train 
is in their calculation. Going from Frankfurt to Paris, most people just think, well, you just fly that, right? Well, actually, in reality, it's exactly the same time to go from Frankfurt to Paris by train as it is to go from Frankfurt to Berlin. Um, and we've got to start thinking about that. We've got to manage to make sure that international train trips are just as normal, as just as regular. Importantly, it's just as reliable and just as easy to do as they are within one country. So I don't expect most people to take a 48-hour rail trip for a business journey. Um, I'm kind of take that to somewhat to an extreme to prove the point. But I want to break that down. That was also very important for the, this project I did this summer. I didn't take many extremely long trips. I was taking those one to two hour long train journeys that were crossing borders. Um, so as to see what that was like at the individual border itself, yeah? Um, so try to see how that, how that could impact the kind of real normal people on the ground. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I completely agree. I mean, when there's these kind of connections, which you figure people must go back and forth all the time, I don't know, uh, Berlin to Brussels or something. And you're yeah. just like, well, why do you have to stop in, in Cologne to do that? Like, it just seems, it seems like such a waste. And for all the business travel going back and forth, I mean, I'm sure there's countless examples you could name, but yeah, it that's one something. that's come to mind. But those types of things, right? If you take a step back from that, you, that one is quite interesting because you have, you have considerable tech, uh, it's a regular route for me, but Berlin to Brussels, you have, um, Considerable technical complexity when you cross a border within the European Union. So just to cross that one, you need within an ICE train in Germany operates under one electrical voltage, right? 15,000 volts. When you cross into Belgium, you have two other voltages it has to manage to, to, to handle if the train crosses into Belgium, 3,000 volts and 25,000. So you need a special ICE in order mm. to cross from Germany into Belgium. The problem is, is Deutsche Bahn doesn't have very many of those ICEs that can cross into Belgium, right? So what do you do, right? Now, ideally, you or I, we may say, hey, it'd be really nice if Deutsche Bahn ordered more of those ICEs to cross into Belgium. But Deutsche Bahn says, well, we don't think we make much profit about that by running trains like that. German politics doesn't apply much pressure to make sure that Deutsche Bahn would order such ICEs. And so you end up with the current situation where you have to change in Cologne in order to manage to make that trip. Now, I haven't got anything against changing trains per se, but if you want a network based on lots of changes, it has to be pretty reliable and you need to manage to make sure that if you miss your connection, that the next train will come around pretty soon. Now, the difficulty is, is for many connections, those trains aren't reliable and the next one doesn't come around pretty soon. And so you end up getting stuck somewhere. So you end up getting this kind of combination now that... One of the people I met in my project, one of the very, very best kind of thinkers and practical minds in European railways, is the boss of the EU Agency for Railways in Valenciennes in France, an Austrian uh, gentleman called Josef Doppelbauer. And he calls this collective irresponsibility. And I think it's quite nice because a route like Cologne to Brussels, it's a German train, but it's actually more important for a Belgian audience that that train runs, right? Germany's got loads of cross-border lines, just Brussels is just one of many, right? Belgium, small country, it's got one cross-border line to Germany and that is it. But Belgium has comparatively little impact on the problem if Deutsche Bahn doesn't, the Deutsche Bahn's trains are breaking down or connections are being missed in Cologne. So no one really solves it, right? The Belgians want it to be fixed, but they can't fix it. And Germany could fix it, but doesn't really want to because ultimately the line to Brussels is much lesser a political priority than uh, Frankfurt to Munich is. 
And so therefore you end up with a situation where it's very, very hard for people in your shoes or mine from a kind of a passenger perspective to bring pressure to bear to say, hey, we want something better on a route like this. And that then it boils down to what I want to try and do with the project here is essentially you say, well, if individual countries in the EU are not solving this stuff. Well, what the hell could the EU itself do in order to manage to solve these things better? And for me, the difficulty is, is that European Union has largely been investing money in the lines themselves. So the tracks between Cologne and Brussels are in a pretty good state. There are a couple of bits where it could be improved a bit, but generally it's pretty good. But it's the, the trains themselves, where there aren't enough of them, how often they run, do the timetables connect well in Cologne? Are they reliable? Is it easy to book? If I miss the train and I need to take the next train, which might be run by some other company, I have the problem that I can't hop on the next Talis train on that connection, whereas I, if I had a just a, a Deutsche Bahn ticket. And so what the EU needs to do is actually look at those individual borders and say, hey, we have a problem here. Rail is not meeting its potential at this border. What are we going to do in order to manage to fix it? So take the kind of big politics and narrow that right down to the individual borders in question. And that's exactly what I've then been trying to do with this uh, with this project. Interesting. And, and so before we get into into some of the maybe the specific findings or areas, you know, where you uh, the sort of the, the sort of top like headline areas where you think there could be some improvement. Could you outline a bit what sort of like the division of labor is between the European level and the national level on rail? Because um, I know you've commented specifically about, you know, sort of wishing the, the transport commissioner would um, would do a bit more to this. But like and you say, you know, well, it is like sort of a national problem and the, the Deutsche Bahn doesn't really want to invest enough. And so what like just sort of maybe on like the overall level. Yeah. Like what where is the EU responsible and where are the national rail providers? Because there's also yeah. basically every country has its sort of national rail, but then there's also some degree of privatization. So it, it feels yeah. like a very complex patchwork of actors. And I, I can I can see just sort of intuitively why it would be difficult to coordinate all, all of that. So. If we look back at a, take a stage in, say, the 1980s, um, you had a situation where each country in the European Union had its own state-owned railway company, and that company also operated the tracks in that country. So in France, SNCF ran the trains, and they owned and operated the tracks, and the French state owned SNCF. And that was the same also, let's leave German reunification out of this. West Germany had Deutsche Bundesbahn and Deutsche Bundesbahn operated also the tracks as well as the trains. Now, the difficulty then was, is then if you had a train that ran from one country into a neighbouring country, you needed collaboration between the, the those two state entities on both sides of the border. Now, it worked sort of, but if you look at the statistics, actually... International rail, even in that era of state-owned railways, did not really work very well. Rail had still a much higher share of national journeys than it had of international journeys. So the cooperative model between the state railways was not really fully working, neither for passengers nor for freight. Now, what then happened is in the 1990s, the era of privatisation, liberalisation and deregulation, the European Union set itself probably at the time what was the right aim. It basically said, hey, if we take the experience of other network industries like, like gas or electricity or telecoms, 
Can we separate out the operations, so who runs the trains, from who owns the track? And basically then allow different operators to bid for paths on the track somewhere else in Europe. So if I were an enterprising German company and I saw a business opportunity on French tracks, could I say, ah, I would actually, instead of cooperating with SNCF on the French side of the border, can actually run trains on my own back uh, on the French side of the border. So that liberalization process. Now, what has generally happened is that has worked to a greater extent for freight that it's worked for passenger trains. We still have in passenger railways the situation where we still have these largely national operators like Deutsche Bahn or SNCF and a few other operators around the edges who offer some services. Now, in three countries in Europe, notably, there are four actually, in fact, private operators that have managed to get a kind of a put their foot in the door, force the door open a bit to manage to muscle in on the market and where the state operator now doesn't run all of the trains. So the main countries where that's happened are Italy, Austria, Czechia and Sweden, where there are now a mixture of private operators and state operators running on those networks. In Germany, somewhat as well for, for regional transport, but not for long distance transport. Now, the difficulty then is, is we have railways in Europe that feel like in some places they've got the worst of a state operator and the worst of a private operator. So basically, if you have only one company running your trains, but you don't have any of the old kind of public service state owned railway ethos any longer, you end up with a really problematic situation. And the worst of all, in my view, is the line between Brussels and Paris. It is run by a company called Thales, which is owned by the French state railways SNCF. But it is run like a private business. It has to make a profit. Now, that line has limited capacity in the trains. The trains are eye-wateringly expensive. But SNCF does everything it can to keep competition out. So it neither has a sort of a social function like a state-owned railway, nor is there competition which might drive down prices. And so passengers lose. Now, it's kind of insane between Brussels and Paris because you still get people taking buses on that route, despite the bus taking three times as long as the train. But why is that? It's because the trains are so damned expensive. Now, either the French and the Belgian government sort of say, hey, we need to sort this out in order to manage to offer cheaper prices and we have a proper state-owned, socially orientated operator. Or we set the framework so as to allow competition on those lines. But at the moment, we've got neither of those and you therefore have this situation where the trains are then horribly expensive and the, mar and the market share for trains is not as high as it could be. Now, the other side of the coin, if you look at a high-speed line like in Italy between um, Milan and Rome, there you have competition between two operators. And that competition really works because it's also driven down the prices. So you have to basically work out politically before you come to the public-private thing. What do you want? What percentage of your passengers on a given route do you actually want to take the train and you've got to have a commitment to that politically, and then you've got to work out the structure that would be appropriate in order to manage to fix it. Now, the difficulty is, is the European Union says, hey, we've set the framework for this. Theoretically, I don't know, a Swedish company could run trains on uh, Brussels to Paris, but in reality, the barriers to access are still too high to allow any 
possible external operator to basically muscle their way in on a line like that. So the liberalization process, which has been forced forward by the EU, has worked in some places, but in by no means all. And that's the kind of situation that European railways kind of find themselves stuck in. Now, one thing I learned from this project as well is a lot of people say, hey, John, should we just have state-owned railways or should we just have privately run railway companies? My answer to that is actually, I haven't got an answer because I've seen in this project really good state railways and really bad ones and really good private companies and really bad ones, right? Now, you've got a bit of a mixture of all of them. Um, and so therefore, depending upon the circumstance and depending upon the attitude of a company, then you have a, a difference uh, of the outcome. So um, I can't give you an answer saying, should it be private or state? I've seen a bit of everything um, in, this, in this project. And, and you have a bit of a weird situation in some European countries, right, where the the state railway of one country will own the rail of a different country. So I remember I took the... I took the, the, the Thessaloniki Athens train just a few days ago and it says Hellenic train and then it has like an Italian it's name. Run, it's and owned all, by the Italian state. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. And, and, all, and all the train attendants have a train Italia pin on their shirt yeah, yeah, yeah. and you're on a train in Greece. Yeah, that, that's that. The Greek situation is a particularly absurd one. Now, train Italia... Uh, I think they kind of didn't quite know what they were letting themselves in for. They basically saw an opportunity in freight to run container trains from the from the ports in Greece through to Central Europe. I think they were not. I think they underestimated somewhat how decrepit the infrastructure was in northern Greece in order to manage to make that work as a plan because there isn't much freight running in Greece and passengers were then of secondary concern. But you do have the situation where, for example, the Italian state railways runs runs trains in competition against the French state railways on French tracks. Uh, so that's quite an interesting circumstance as well. So you have state operators behaving like private operators uh, on the other side of a border in a few places. Yeah, that's that's... But the reason is financial. If you want to buy a train, you know, or even lease one, you need considerable financial means. And that the banks are more likely to lend a state-owned operator the money in order to acquire those trains than a small private operator, because a state-backed operator is a safer financial bet uh, to raise that, that finance in order to buy a new train. Interesting. Yeah. And another, I'd be curious if, if you would back this up, but a, a, a I heard from someone who, who works at Deutsche Bahn that one of the issues sometimes with the, the privatization on the, the regional routes is that, you know, they have to put certain routes out for tender um, and the private companies will only bid on the ones they think will be profitable. So Deutsche Bahn is left holding the bag for some of the, the ones that are still important for connecting rural communities, but aren't necessarily profitable. And then they sort of look it sort of uh, they sort of look less profitable or look less yeah, yeah, financially capable than than they would otherwise because some of the best lines are the ones that get bid on privately. Yeah, somewhat. Although basically Deutsche Bahn does this abroad as well. So a bunch of regional routes in the UK, for example, are run by Deutsche Bahn. Yeah. And they've done exactly that the other way around. So it's not exactly to say that Deutsche Bahn is always the kind of poor one left with the problem in this yeah. circumstance. Uh, it, I remember taking that train. It was, I don't know, one of the ones, yeah, a, a train from like London to, to Oxford and uh, one of the one of the routes. And it, it was seeing a DB logo in the UK. I was like, wait, yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so this kind of goes both ways. Now, what's important when you set up the tendering for regional routes is many local governments or the lender in Germany have always basically given the contract to the company that bids the lowest financial bid. 
Um, now, and they don't put quality criteria so strongly in their competitive tendering. Now, if it's only on price, then Deutsche Bahn is never going to win those tenders because Deutsche Bahn has quite a high cost overhead. Now, conversely, some of the tenders that Deutsche Bahn has won, most notably the tender still to run the S-Bahn in Munich, those who use the S-Bahn on an everyday basis are highly critical of Deutsche Bahn running that one in the same way as they've been critical of some private companies that have won some other regional tenders in other parts of Germany. Now, so I don't really see that as kind of a Deutsche Bahn versus private enterprise kind of cherry picking of some sort. I see that as basically a problem in the way that those tenders are structured. Now, getting a tender structured well is a very, very complicated thing to do in public administration terms. And many parts of Germany have simply not structured those tenders right. And there are a bunch of different regions that have tried different models to get those tenders to work. Um, and there are some good examples. In my project, I took a, a network in Bavaria called the Waldbahn. Um, it serves an area of, of rural Bavaria, uh, and it's run by, um, actually owned by the Italian State Railways, but run on a competitive tender by a company called Netinera that belongs to the Italian State Railways. And it runs like clockwork. It's a really, really interesting setup. Uh, so you've got a bit of everything there. Now, I, I, for me, Deutsche Bahn... Uh, Deutsche Bahn has to get its own thinking clear about what it wants in each tender that it bids for. And it's also got to sort out some of its own operations, because in some parts of Germany for its regional trains, it doesn't often perform particularly well in comparison to some of those private companies. So I've got personally, I've got limited uh, sympathy for Deutsche Bahn uh, in that situation. Yeah, no, I was, I was curious what your what your opinion on that was. I mean, I'm a person that sort of leans leans toward the you know the the idea of a state railway and like you said but you'd want it to have that sort of social ethos that it's not yeah um you know not not just a pure profit oriented machine but i mean I, I really think especially if i mean one on the climate change front for inner city rail it makes a lot of sense too if you're in a rural community you know i think it's it makes sense for there to be a state-owned entity that maybe makes a loss on that route that's fine but it does allow the people in that community to, to get to the places they need to go and not sort of be stranded and, and also reliant on cars. Right, but if you take the kind of railway, which to use anyway in Western Europe feels like the most statist thing going, it's the Belgian railways, SNCB, right? The trains are really basic inside, right? The seats are rock hard. The trains have a very basic livery. They don't have, even most don't even have power sockets for you to charge your mobile, let alone Wi-Fi. Um... It's everything is really basic, but the ticket prices are set at a level that pretty much everyone in the society could afford, right? Now, that's one way of doing it. It's not to everyone's tastes, yeah? Now, in other parts of Europe, like in Sweden, for example, you've seen considerable innovation, right? You've got different operators on different routes, some of which are faster, slower, more deluxe. Some have a dining car, some don't have a dining car. They offer different levels of service. Some have done away with ticket offices and you just have online bookings, right? You've got a great diversity of what's offered, right? But maybe it's lost a bit that kind of social ethos in there somewhere, yeah? Now, there should be a combination that works out relatively well. Now, to me, the interesting country in Europe that works out pretty well in that regard is actually Czechia. Because what you've got is a, a private, uh, sorry, state-owned operator, Czeski Drahi, that faced two private operators, Leo Express and Regiojet, and Czeski Drahi acknowledges they've improved their quality 
as a state operator because of the pressure that came from the private operators. And Chesky Drahi now is a pretty good state operator. It's improved its service a lot. It's got a really great digital offer, right? The app is among the best that there is in European railways. Onboard comfort and Wi-Fi provided for customers is generally pretty good. You see at the margin, there's some places lacking money and the trains are not always completely deluxe. But basically, if you were to say to me, hey, yeah, look, a great, great dining car too. One, exactly of, right. one of my favorite ones on the, on the Berlin to Prague route, yeah. If you want to see a country where basically say, hey, hang on a minute, we've not got something like Switzerland where we've got masses of public subsidy that we can invest in our railways. But one where you basically got some combination of, of competitive tendering, on-rail competition and a really good state operator. And it serves most of the country and at a price that most people can still afford. Then Czech is a pretty good case. All right. Like if everyone in Europe could get to that level, I think we'd be doing OK. Interesting. Yeah. And so sort of we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about your your cross-border project before we maybe zoom in on Germany and then sort of yeah. maybe compare it to some of the other countries because you mentioned the the Swiss subsidies and I think that that adds an important kind of contrast with what the the investment has been um, in the in the German case but um could you say like what I mean I know you overall like you pointed out some of your frustrations with the with the lack of connections could you maybe give us like the Maybe the top three, three or five, like most sort of egregious, like lacks of connections uh, cross border or sort of the, the main things you'd see that you really found kind of alarming or, or that could be, you know, could and should be fixed quickly in the European context. So at the start of the project, I thought there were four problems and I'll give an example of each of the four. Right. So the first is in some places there used to be railway tracks that would cross borders and they've fallen out of use for a variety of different reasons. In two places I went, there were bridges until the end of World War II. The bridges got exploded in the war in World War II and never got rebuilt. And today there's a question, could you reconstruct the lines in these places? Now, honestly, these were not very optimistic in, my, in, in the places that I went. There was only one, really, at the border between Valenciennes in France and Quivrin in Belgium, where there were two kilometers of line which are out of use. And if you could re construct that line, it would offer Valenciennes a route basically through to Brussels. So all of the others I just I looked at, Camfranc in the Pyrenees, Bad Radkesburg in, in, in Austria, a bunch of different places, actually basically reactivating lines which had fallen into disrepair. This was really, really hard. The second category were places where you have lines which are still active, they are still legally operable, but no passenger trains run. Now that sounds a bit ridiculous, like you've got a track and nothing runs there. Now, some of those still run for freight, right? That's the situation where you were recording this call from Greece. The line uh, from Sofia in Bulgaria to Thessaloniki in Greece is exactly one of those lines. The line is active for freight, but there are no passenger trains that are running there. So this question then could be is, could you put passenger trains back on a line like that in addition to the freight? Now, on that line between Sofia and Thessaloniki, I ultimately concluded you can't because the infrastructure and the speeds you can run there is too low. But there are another, a bunch of places, like, for example, between Harmont in Belgium and Viet in the Netherlands, 
which would allow a connection between Antwerp and Eindhoven, you could quite easily run passenger trains there and it would then actually offer a cross-border passenger connection. Or between Novogorica in Slovenia and Gorizia in Italy, there they're just three and a half kilometers of track that don't have any passenger trains. And you can make an interesting connection there between that corner of Slovenia and Italy if you were to run passenger trains just three and a half kilometers further than they run at the moment. So there are a bunch of those where you say, okay, you've got a track, run a passenger train on it, and you can make some quick improvement. There is actually one of those from Greece, but it's probably a long way away from where, where you are uh, making this podcast. The very northeastern corner of Greece, Alexandropoli, practically the border to Turkey. There, there's a cross-border line to Svilengrad in Bulgaria, and that one you could actually reactivate for passenger operation uh, quite easily because the infrastructure there is actually in a good way. So that was the second lot. The third lot is places where there are trains that run, but they run with a timetable that is so bad that no person can really take them. Like, what are you, this seems even crazier, right? So I was on a cross-border train from Mons in Belgium to Aulnois in France that left Mons at 6.04 a.m. in the morning. It was the first train of the day leaving Mons, the southern Belgian city. Three train of three carriages, and I was literally the only passenger on the train. There was not another soul on this train because the timetable is so bad that no one can possibly take it. Now, basically, the Belgian government says, "Hey, tick, we have a train that runs. Look, we that a line is active, tick." Um, but no, it's designed that no one can use it. Now, that's just insane, um, and so you need to fix those. Or at the border between Estonia and Latvia, there is a train. But the train from Tallinn to the border station Valga arrives half an hour after the train from Valga on into Latvia uh, departs. And the next one is in three and a half hours. So you have to wait at the border station for three and a half hours. Now, what you basically need is the timetabling authorities on both sides of the border to sit down together and go, hey, like, let's fix this and let's sort this out. And the fourth is then even simpler, is information problems. So if you want to cross the border from France into Spain, at three of the borders, at Ondai Irun, which is at the Atlantic coast, at La Tour de Carole Puigcerda, which is in the middle of the Pyrenees, and at Sever Port Beau, which is on the Mediterranean coast, there are trains crossing the border there, but they are not in the international timetable databases. So if you put on French Railways website Paris to Bilbao, right, which is just there at the Atlantic coast, it will try and route you via Barcelona which is on the Mediterranean coast, because the data is missing in the databases for the trains that cross the border at the Atlantic coast border, right? Now, that, so you've got a good train, but the data is nowhere to be found unless you know a local train database that tells you the time of the train that crosses the border. Now, before we even come, and I haven't talked much about booking tickets yet, before you even come to buying a ticket for a train, you need to know which trains even run. And that's actually really a problem in many places where you are actually as well at the moment in Greece. Try looking at train times in Google Maps in Greece and it's miles wrong. Like it's hours wrong when you look for train times in Google Maps in Greece. So you need, before you even buy a ticket, you need reliable information. And at a bunch of borders, most notably the France-Spain border, that reliable information doesn't exist. So basically... The conclusion is actually 
rebuilding tracks is hard, right? But the stuff that's much easier is run some trains on tracks that exist already, run them with a good timetable, and if you run them, make sure the information is available. Now, if you solve those problems, right, that's not going to solve all of the difficulties of European rail, but at least it will solve some of them, right? And, uh, and at least I've got some there where you could go, actually, you could solve this pretty much immediately without that much um, uh, um, much political will or even that much money. Yeah, those last couple seem like pretty low-hanging fruit, and it's right. pretty pretty shocking that you can't even manage that. And so you, you, you mentioned... The, the difficulty of actually booking some of these tickets, which I find I find pretty interesting. Um, and I think I've seen you um, online compare it to the situation with flights where you, I mean, there's there's dozens of these flight comparison sites, right? right? It's, it's so easy. Google flights, I mean, everybody knows. And so you just go on, it has all the different airlines, price, comparison, very easy. And for whatever reason, there's not really an equivalent on rail travel, there's a few that attempt to do it right, like uh, was it train line, um, and the the Deutsche Bahn site has a decent overview of a lot of European yeah. rail, but there's no sort of unified platform. And I think on my journey here from from Berlin uh, through Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, and then into Greece, I think I had to book a ticket with at least four different companies yeah. to do that. Right. So. It's not that tech entrepreneurs are not trying to fix this problem, right? That's not where the issue is, right? Train lines trying, Omeo's trying, Rail Europe is trying. There's a company in Sweden, two in Sweden, in fact, all aboard and RailTech that are trying. The problem is they can't get the data because the railways won't give them that data. Um, and so therefore, train line can only sell what the railway companies will give it in terms of data. And there's still this mentality among the railway companies. We run the train, and so therefore we should be the ones selling the ticket. Now, that kind of approach has somewhat died, right, among airlines. You basically realize if you haven't got a fair price comparison, then no one's going to come to your website necessarily in order to manage to book the ticket. The second issue that then comes into play then as well is passenger rights. Now, the difficulty is, is if you book a ticket like... Um, a route I take quite often, which is is Berlin to rural Burgundy in France, outside of Dijon. I cannot, even though it's only two countries, right? It's nowhere near as complicated as the route you took there to Greece, right? It's only two countries. There is no site that can sell me one single ticket for that journey from Berlin to the village of Nuit-sur-Ravière, where I go in Burgundy. I need two tickets. Now, the problem then comes is if my first train breaks down or gets delayed, I do not have rights automatically to take the next one if I miss my connection when I get to the other side of the border. Now, that then means that I can be left in the worst situation. I can be left either stuck or I have to buy a new ticket when I'm on the other side of the border for no fault of my own. Now, the problem is, is, for me, this issue should be something that the European Union should be prime thing the European Union should solve. But basically, the European Commission and members of the European Parliament have never really solved this one. Now, so basically, to take a step back, that I need four tickets to get to my destination. How do you solve it? There are two ways of solving it. One is you oblige the railway companies to make available or to sell through tickets, right? It should be possible to book a Berlin Bucharest in, in one ticket, right? Technically really difficult to do because you've got like seats on multiple trains or whatever, right? Now that, to me, 
the wish of wanting one ticket is a panacea that we're simply not ever going to achieve in rail because it's much more complicated to do if I need four or five trains, right? Because in a flight transaction, what am I going to need? Maximum three planes, but most normally only one or two. The better solution is to offer a delay guarantee system that basically says, right, look, I've got four or five tickets to get to my destination. I've booked it in a way which is sensible, right? I've not left myself a five minute connection to cross between terminals in Paris, for example, right? It is a logically planned route. And I might have four or five tickets for the, for the booking. But in the case that one of those tickets in my, in my chain uh, my train breaks down, I automatically have the right to take later ones somewhere later along my route. And if you solved it that way, then you'd be fine. Because that then basically would allow the likes of Trainline or Deutsche Bahn or whoever to basically sell you multiple tickets in one transaction. And you would know as a passenger that you would still get to your destination. Uh, and so ultimately, that should be the way that the European Union should look to solve it. So I'm much more in favour of kind of a delay guarantee system than I am in favour of making sure you need only one ticket for one for one trip. Um, because ultimately, the IT complexity of managing to do that is probably too difficult. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't imagine it. Yeah, how difficult that would be to try to get any any compensation knowing um, the the multiple extensive fights I've gotten in with Deutsche Bahn for trying yeah, to get money totally. back for a delay. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. being Germany, you have to do it all by physical letter back and forth. They have <laughs> and just introduced a digital system, actually, but I admit I, I haven't yet gone through it. I can't I, I've submitted it digitally, well it... but then they start sending you letters if they don't oh. like everything you've sent. So it's like okay. it starts out online, but then if it's not 100% okay. perfect, you still have to send letters and evidence back and forth to Frankfurt. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah. <laughs> that was a bit, a bit frustrating. Um, so yeah, that's that's really interesting. Your uh, the, the sort of the sort of four observations, I guess, sort of moving from from difficult to easy as you yeah. lay it out. Something I'm I'm curious about, and you mentioned a sort of previous project about um, about the night trains, is and I've seen you you, you post a bit about this, um, and I think there's there's been a sort of resurgence of night trains um, in Europe, especially being led by the UBB, the um, the uh, Austrian um, state railway. Where there's a lot of a lot of night trains coming, um, especially you know, based obviously um, with sort of a, a hub in Vienna, yeah. but I believe they're starting you know some maybe like Berlin to Paris or something, some ones that don't go actually through Vienna. So there's this this sort of small small renaissance of night trains, and I believe it was just a few years ago Deutsche Bahn got rid of all of theirs, which yeah. is not looking like a great decision in retrospect, I guess. And what could you comment on that a little bit? I've also seen a lot of these sort of weird startups it'll be like european sleeper and it seems like it's not really in existence yet but it's really slick marketing and like yeah, you know yeah. it goes all the way from i don't know if they say we're going to connect london with prague or you know some yeah, far-fetched yeah. thing could you comment a bit on that the developments there both the ones that maybe are actually existing and the ones that that are not yet yeah so deutsche bahn sold all its old night train carriages to the austrian railways so that's why there are actually still some night trains that serve Germany. It's basically they're run now by the Austrians rather than run by the by the Germans. Um, so Deutsche Bahn getting out of that business, maybe that made sense, right? Because basically no railway companies other than the Austrians have invested in new night trains since some point in the 1990s. Many of the carriages are really old and they're not particularly comfortable because they're noisy, the air conditioning isn't great. So 
the experience of taking night trains was essentially going downhill for many years until someone said people basically the Austrians said hey actually this is something we need to work on and so Austrian Railways has ordered a fleet of 33 new night trains the first of which will be starting running in December of this year and so that will increase the numbers of routes not only to or from Austria but then also from some neighboring countries but it's very important to say that Austrian Railways night train strategy is still ultimately focused on Austria. Every train they run comes back after maximum four days back to Austria, right? So all of their maintenance is all done still in Austria. So uh, the train that they run at the moment from Zurich to Berlin it's not actually Zurich to Berlin. Day one, it goes from Graz in Austria to Zurich. Day two, it goes from Zurich to Berlin. Day three, it goes from Berlin to Zurich. And day four, it goes from Zurich to Graz, right? So that's how they run it. It's basically still an Austrian company. It's just you doing slightly longer trips out from Austria that take more than a day. Now, that then is the crucial point is you cannot rely on Austrian railways to solve all of Europe's night train problems, right? I have it on the record from their head of their night train program, Kurt Bauer, he said, I am sure there is a night train po the, uh, potential for Cologne to Warsaw, but we, the Austrian railways, will not run it, right? And fair enough, right? If they only have maintenance workshops in Austria and they can't work out a way to run a Cologne-Warsaw, I can't oblige them or can't say that they ought to do it, right? Now, Austrian Railways is basically the only company in Europe that sees an opportunity in night trains and has the operational ability in order to manage to make them happen. The problem is, is all the others, the companies that have the operational ability to run more trains don't want to, right? So that's Deutsche Bahn, SNCF and Spanish Renfe. They would have the opportunity to really do it. Train Italia in Italy, they're starting to think a bit more about night trains. They, may, they put out a tender maybe for 70 new carriages. So maybe something's beginning to move a bit in Italy as well. And then on the other side, you have the small operators, be they either state or private. So the likes of Belgian Railways, Dutch Railways, Danish Railways, the state ones. Or startups like European Sleeper based in Amsterdam or Midnight Trains based in Paris. The difficulty there is a different one. They want to run night trains, but they don't have the financial means to buy any new trains. Because the challenge at the moment is the reason there aren't any more night trains just now is there is actually demand right now for more routes. But no one's got any night trains to actually run, right? Ones with beds in, right? Liga Wagen, as the Germans call it, hard sleepers or sleeping cars, um, a Schlafwagen. Um, no one's got any, right? Or any spare. And that's then the reason why all of this kind of hype, if you like, around night trains is actually not going very far at the moment. Because basically, there's only one company in Europe that's got the operational ability and the financial clout to really part solve it, Austrian Railways, and they can only solve it mostly to and from Austria. And so therefore, I'm as big a fan of night trains as you can possibly find. I take them as regularly as I can. But I'm very skeptical about the ability of the railway industry to really solve this problem because someone somewhere has got to make a big order of new night train carriages and no one is doing that. Interesting. Yeah, no, I've noticed that with a lot of them being being a bit dated and having yeah. Yeah, having various things broken. I think both two times I took the, the Rome to to Palermo line and both times the shower was broken, you know, right, so paid, right. paid extra for the one thing. Okay. I don't want to arrive really grubby and, and yeah, sweaty, yeah. you know, and then, okay, never mind. Or, um, yeah, kind of air conditioning, not working very well. That's a, that's a classic. That's a tough one. Yeah. When yeah. you're trapped in that little, yeah, yeah, little yeah, yeah, box yeah, exactly. and you're just getting sweaty, start panicking a bit. Yeah. yeah. So last, last sort of just a question for me on the, the European rail before we um, get into a, a little bit more detail about Germany is 
I assume, well, I'm just curious. So about most times when you take a train across the border, for example, I know if you take it from, as I say, Berlin to Prague, they'll switch locomotives in Dresden. Or when I took it from uh, Bucharest to Sofia, it was, you know, I think yeah. uh, Timisoara, they, they switch it. Is that because of the different electrification or is that just a sort of like money thing with the operators and like them not wanting to have one company drag the train into uh, far into the other country? It's a bit of both. Um, okay. uh, so the, the Berlin Prague is now mostly being solved, right? That it's now planned to not change the train, uh, the mm. locomotive in Dresden. Because it wastes like a half hour usually to, to right, do that. You exactly. just sit there. You sit there. So Nave now, Chesky Drahi, the, the Czech railway company, has bought interoperable locomotives, actually built in Germany by Siemens in Munich, um, that are compatible with the systems in Czechia and in Germany, and so can run the whole way through, right? Now, locomotives that can run in multiple countries do exist. The question then comes to your kind of implicit in, in what, what you just said, is do the railway companies have any of those? And do they actually want to run them? Now, it was kind of absurd. On my project, I was crossing the border between Croatia and Slovenia. And there we were, parked up in Dobova, the border station, waiting for the locomotive to be changed. While on the neighbouring track, a freight train went straight through because the freight operator had an interoperable locomotive. But neither of the passenger operators of either Croatia or Slovenia had thought to buy one that was interoperable for the passenger train, right? So basically, simply put, there's a lot of technical complexity behind this answer, but basically, if your train runs at up to 200 kmh, right? So basically anything that's not super high speed, it's pretty easy by now to get an interoperable locomotive that you don't have to change at the border. If your train is a high-speed train, right, which you can't, it hasn't really got a locomotive anyway, then your technical complexity is much harder in order to manage to fix that. And you need a special dedicated constructed train that can operate across that border. So that's the kind of problem that you've got between Germany and Brussels. The trains on that route run up at up to 300 kmh, and so you need a dedicated specially built ICE in order to manage to do that. But basically, the old style locomotive plus carriages, getting an interoperable locomotive to run one of those is pretty simple and straightforward. Now, what I've discovered in my project is railway companies on their own accord are perfectly capable of making really bad decisions. So the Danish state railways ordered a fleet of new locomotives that had the electrification system that would run in Sweden, but forgot to add the Swedish signaling system to those locomotives. And now, oh, they're suddenly short of trains that can cross the bridge between Sweden and Denmark because they ordered a fleet without the signaling system for the Swedish side, right? Now, no politician can really... Well, the framework is there. We know how to build those locomotives. Freight operators have those locomotives that operate there. But Danish State Railways for passenger trains ordered the wrong thing. Right now, that that to me is an incomprehensible decision. OK, they saved a bit of money by not adding the, the, the Swedish signaling system. But they then massively limit the flexibility to deploy what they then actually did buy. Um, and so... What one thing I would like the European Union to do is, again, be more proactive in that regard. If there is a price difference between ordering a one that can run only in one country and an interoperable one that can run in multiple countries, so as to make sure railway companies have enough of these interoperable ones, then the European Union can make some kind of interoperability fund to finance the difference between a kind of run-in-one-country locomotive and a run-in-multiple-country locomotives. Now, at your border there between... 
Hungary and Romania, there there's no technical dip difficulty. The electrification system is the same and the signaling systems are very similar. There are lots of locomotives that can cross that border there. Uh, so chances are that was actually a kind of an operator's problem, yeah, that basically it was they've not found a financial means to compensate each other if the Hungarian locomotive runs the whole way through to, to Bucharest or the Romanian locomotive runs the whole way through to Budapest. Uh, and so there it's a, a, a kind of a financial operational question, not actually a technical operational question, uh, which which limits the ability to run through. Okay, that's great. Yeah, I was I was always kind of curious about that. So it's, uh, it's very interesting. To know. Well, a, a tip to look at that, right? On the side of every locomotive, there's a label yeah. and it will and it will tell you uh, the countries in which that locomotive can run, right, with the, oh, like D, yeah. Germany, CH for Switzerland, and so yeah. on. And it will tell you as well the maximum speed the locomotive can run, 140, 160, 200, and so on. Now, if you look at the side of a locomotive and you see no label that says D, A, C, H, uh, R, uh, H for Hungary, whatever, that basically says that locomotive is only compatible in the country in which you are currently standing. So if you see a Deutsche Bahn one that doesn't have a list of countries on the side, that basically says, this can only run in Germany, simply put. Yeah? But that's a way of knowing, of is this locomotive actually one that ca- could literally carry on to the other side of the border? Okay, that, that's great to know. I'll, I'll definitely keep an eye out for that. And so, yeah, let's, uh, let's move on to to Germany a bit specifically um, because I think that that covers the the European picture very well. I know you have a lot more a lot more detail but I don't want to keep you for too long. Um, So just yeah a little bit about German rail I just I pulled up a couple statistics just to give people an idea of what the the kind of context is right. So you know Germans um, do use the train quite a bit. I believe it ranks uh, sixth in the world by uh, passenger kilometers at uh, 100 billion a year. That's in 2019, but mm. obviously data would have been a bit interrupted after that year uh, behind China, India, Japan, Russia, France, and then Germany in at number six. But at the same time, you know, it's a that's obviously quite a um, a bit, you know, it's obviously a very, uh, very popular way to get around. There are, of course, just a lot of Germans so as a modal share. I think it's only like like 10 percent, not not as high or, or also on a per capita basis, but still a very important way that people really rely on. At the same time, Germany invests um, a relatively small amount in yeah. that rail and has had a truly atrocious um, punctuality, um, especially this past year. I mean, it was it was hovering at about. 70-ish percent before this, and it actually dropped below 60 percent measured yeah. by trains that are um, that are within five minutes of their scheduled time, which is sometimes how they'll, they'll schedule tight connections. So that five minutes really matters. And it dropped below 60 percent in, in yeah. July 2020, which is pretty atrocious. And, and on that investment side, I believe it's um, this is 2018 data, but Germany invested about 77 euros per capita. And you compared that to, say, Switzerland, which is 365. Yeah. Um, even countries, you know, that um, I'm sure a slight uh, German German chauvinist that like to that like to look down on Southern Europe, you know, might be surprised that uh, Italy invests 93, or yeah. you know, even Britain, where people are pretty mad about the rail all the time, is 116. Yeah. So the other countries that are up there would be Austria, Denmark, Sweden, and the Netherlands. And so. What it's sort of what's what's going on with with the with Deutsche Bahn? I mean, is this just a story of just catastrophic lack of investment and sort of incompetence in operation? I, I believe some of it this year was kind of an unexpected um, resurgence of demand after COVID. Yeah. I think that kind of caught them off guard. But yeah, could you 
give us a little context and maybe maybe even starting with the the history of Deutsche Bahn because it's or the recent history because it's in sort of a weird state where it's technically yeah. a corporation with shares like a, an Aktiengesellschaft but the German government owns all of the shares right so i think the, the simple point is you largely get what you pay for in railways and so that point about the low per capita investment in germany is true um, and you notice that very much in the quality or the lack of quality of the network we also have to bear in mind is on certain lines the service is incredibly dense in germany and germany basically takes the approach that if you run a, if a line is active you ought to run a train at least once an hour on it all right and the the high or high-ish speed line in Germany that's the most used, Berlin-Hamburg, has 35 trains a day each way on it. And the most used one in France, Paris to Lyon, has just 21, right? So you've got this incredible density of service in German railways, which is much higher than the density of service that you get in many other railways in Europe. Some are higher still, like Netherlands, but others, notably France or Spain, are considerably lower in terms of the numbers of trains running on each individual track. That then means that the moment something goes wrong in Germany, you have a knock-on impact on a whole load more trains than you would do... If my if my IC is delayed 15 minutes, it's going to impact a regional express, it's going to impact a couple of freight trains, people are going to miss their connections, which means it impacts them, which has an, an, an onward impact on the overcrowding of trains that come after that. If the train is overcrowded, that's going to make the next one late because all the passengers couldn't get into this one. Right. So you have this situation on the network where you have like a, a dreadful domino effect that the moment something goes wrong, that has knock on impacts on all kinds of other, uh, other aspects uh, of the network. Now, why is this so difficult and so tense and so bad at the moment? Now, basically, with the, the so-called Bahn reform of the, the, the late 1990s, the idea was, and it comes back to a bit to what we talked about from the European level earlier on, the splitting up of Deutsche Bahn into essentially three main entities. Uh, DB Nets that runs the track, DB Regio that runs all of the regional trains and competes with private operators on the basis of competitive tendering to run regional trains. And DB Fernverkehr that runs all of the intercities and the ICEs that is supposed to be financially cost returning and so it should run at a profit on its own feet, right? Now, the difficulty with all of that ultimately, and although it's still a state enterprise, there was the idea to part privatize it, which in the end never came to pass. So that's why you've got this weird situation that it is an RG, but which is completely owned by the state. Deutsche Bahn is generally run to some extent like a profit-making company, but it does not run like a profit-making company fully and completely and totally, but it doesn't run like a state enterprise fully and completely and totally either. Right Now, if you look at how damned cheap some Sparpreis tickets are if you want to cross Germany on an ICE, does it make business sense necessarily to make those tickets that cheap? Not sure. But if they weren't that cheap, it would be a political problem for Deutsche Bahn. And so that's why they keep on running those things that cheap, right? SNCF in France will never sell you a 19 euro ticket from, from Paris to Lyon on a Friday because 
they know the train will fill up anyway, and so they start the ticket price higher than Deutsche Bahn ever would. Right? So Deutsche Bahn's attitude is being it's kind of it's sort of constrained in all directions, right? It wants to invest more in the infrastructure, but it's not got the money from the state. It wants to operate like a private business in how it runs its long distance trains, but it can't really because the state still run, runs it. When it's running regional trains, it has to compete against private operators. So it's somewhere in that market is also constrained because its costs are higher, because also it has generally it pays its staff a bit more than the than some of the private operators would and has greater pensions liabilities. So Deutsche Bahn's room for manoeuvre in all of this is really, really limited. Now, add on top of that the pernicious politics that there's been for railway policy in Germany over the years, right? No one really wanted to be transport minister. That's why they gave it to pretty useless CSU ministers for 12 years uh, to be the transport minister. And ultimately, you've got the problem with the current transport minister Vissing from the, from the FDP that he doesn't really seem to have much interest or determination to fix the problems with the railways in Germany anyway. Now, having the car loving party run the, run the yeah, ministry that should be in charge of cha- trains is a bit difficult. Huh? Yes. But having said that, Deutsche Bahn and indeed Germany have not always taken the worst decisions, right? Now, if you want to see how Germany actually took good decisions in its railways, there's a station I can point to that's exactly right. It is Kassel Wilhelmshöhe. You've probably been through there at some point on an ICE on the way from Berlin to Frankfurt or from Hamburg to Munich or something, right? Now, it's a station which is a little bit outside of Kassel. But basically, it is integrated completely into Castle's public transport and all the ICEs stop there, right? There are bus lines, there are tram lines. And basically, rather than Castle Hauptbahnhof, which you've probably never been to, right, which but it still exists, basically, they built in the 1980s pretty much a full new station on the edge of Castle where ICEs could stop, right? Now, it's integrated completely into Castle. Now, what have the French done or the Spanish done is a completely different strategy. Such a station in France would be built in the middle of nowhere next to a massive car park, right? The French call them Garde Betrave, like beetroot stations, because they're in the middle of the beetroot fields. <laughs> and basically, it assumes that everyone taking the train also has a car, right? And you just drive to the railway station, right? That's how the French have planned their high-speed lines, right? Germany hasn't done it that way. And actually, the German strategy is better. It's less car-friendly the way that they plan the high-speed trains in Germany than is the situation in France. Now, so some core basics of the way that Germany does its planning of its railways, right? The timetables for regional trains, they're really good, right? They run once an hour on every line or pretty much every line, right? That's just a dream if you're in rural France, right? That never happens in rural France. So the some of the core basics of its railway in Germany are still right, right? And that's one of the things that I find really frustrating in this kind of discussion. Ah, Deutsche Bahn, everything's going to shit. Well, in some ways, in reliability, it's going to shit, yeah. But actually, the core basics of the way that Germany has many of these things organized are actually still among the best in Europe. Right? Like the numbers of trains that run, how you timetable them. Actually, many of the trains themselves are actually pretty good in terms of what they're like inside and the comfort that you get. Now, what have you got to do to, in order to fix all of this? You need to invest more. You've got to fix the problems with the infrastructure. Now, in my cross-border rail project, Spain is at one extreme and Germany is at the other extreme. Spain has impeccable infrastructure, but very few trains. 
Germany has infrastructure which is collapsing in many places, but runs masses of trains on it, right? Now, so therefore, the attention has to be short to medium term in Germany on the track, on the signals, on the bridges, on the tunnels, to manage to make sure that all of that is more reliable, to make sure it breaks down less often. Now, that's the crucial target that Germany has to focus on. Now, there is hope and there is one project. We haven't heard much from Wissing about this, but it's one thing that's been years in development, but it's a very, very good thing in German, German railway policy, in my view. It's called Deutschlandtakt. It basically takes a Swiss-style transport planning and applies it to the entirety of Germany. It basically says that there is a core network between the major cities, and in each of those major cities, all the ICEs will all arrive on the hour or on the half hour. And they will connect with regional trains that will depart from that city so as to connect with them. Now, that might ultimately mean in order to make a trip from, say, like Berlin to Heidelberg, for example, there will no, be no direct Berlin to Heidelberg. It will be Berlin to Mannheim, but with a guaranteed connection onto the local train to get you to Heidelberg. Now, it is a genuinely good model for Germany. Now, how it connects to neighboring countries is one of the kind of bigger questions with it. But it is a genuinely good central vision of how railways in Germany should be run. And officially on paper, even visiting that the FDP transport minister still wants to implement that plan. So basically, I think it's very, very politically important gives a kind of central vision for how rail in Germany ought to be organised, that Deutschlandtakt is implemented in full, so as to manage to make sure that that basically, it also then says, hey, this line is one that needs upgrades. This line is so slow, there is no solution here. We need to build a completely new track here, right, between... Fulda and Frankfurt, for example. That's really slow. It's very windy along a valley. You can't speed it up anymore. You need a new line. Here is one, actually, you only need to save about five minutes. Here, actually, if you increase the speed from 120 to 160, then you'll be okay. Yeah. Um, and so Deutschlandtakt has a kind of concrete vision of, of that, also a vision that you can turn into concrete reality is a really, really good plan. And it gives me hope that actually things should move in the right direction. Now, one final point on this. Is Deutsche Bahn a well-run company? I don't know. Right, Deutsche Bahn is a strange entity, a, a strange ethos as a company. It feels to me like the people taking the decisions at the highest level of Deutsche Bahn don't really know what it should look like. It feels rather bitty between all of the different parts of the company. In comparison, a company like OBB in Austria or Ceski Drahi in Czechia or even Trenitalia in Italy they feel like more cohesively run railway operations. It's as if Deutsche Bahn is taking some very weird decisions. I can't really understand. Why did it order a completely new design for the new trains that are going to run from Amsterdam to Berlin rather than just extending its ICE fleet? What's with these double-deck intercities that it bought because that have a, a, a speed limit which is lower than the ones that they replaced? Like, these are some very weird decisions. Knows, I they see. look kind of goofy. <laughs> yeah, they're, 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 maybe it's just financial. They're cheap. Yeah, they are cheap. Yeah, um, and so I, I, the what choices Deutsche Bahn has made, I, I'm I struggle to understand what's driving some of those decisions in the company. But the hope is that the sort of 
cohesive strategy than allows for actual sort of clear-headed analysis of priorities. It should. And Deutschland Tax gives that. It says, this is what we want. These are the infrastructure investments that needed in order to manage to operate it. Of course, like something may go wrong, right? You end up with some problem with a tunnel being built that gets delayed or something like that. But it is a strategy which has a broad consensus behind it in German politics. So therefore should be fundamentally implementable. Interesting. Yeah, that's um, that's it's good to know that there's hopefully a, a little bit a little bit of a room for progress because yeah if you're if you're I mean I don't think you even need to be a, a train enthusiast to want to take trains through Germany like I can't really even understand the people that would fly from Berlin to Frankfurt or Berlin to, Berlin Munich, to Munich it's just it's it's, it's mind boggling it just basically basically shouldn't shouldn't exist and so yeah but there needs to be some kind of reliability Right. But one thing which I, I took it for the first time, actually, it's a newish service. It started in Corona, so I haven't yet taken it. The, the Berlin to Cologne Sprinter ICE. Now, it doesn't exactly sprint in terms of time, right? Because basically it runs at the same speed as a regular ICE. It just doesn't stop between Berlin, Spandau and Cologne. Super nice train. Right, like so, like zen calm in there. You've not got people getting in and out every 20 minutes along the route. Um, and that let me basically go, right, like you can really work in that train, right? Yeah, because yeah. of a calm atmosphere. And so those types of things are actually quite good. Make the user experience good, right? Now, that again with Deutsche Bahn is massively variable. Germany's got some really good stations and it's got some horrible stations, <laughs> right? Some places you'd never want to hang around. Now, again, Austrian Railways has paid attention to that as well, right? Like the new Wien Hauptbahnhof is a really good operational main station. Salzburg's improving, Linz is improving, Innsbruck is improving. Now, you need to pay attention to all of those components of your kind of, of your trip. And it feels like in Deutsche Bahn that, that all of those pieces of that, the, the, the booking, the digitization, the, the stations, the trains, the reliability, even the point you're talking about, about getting compensation if something goes wrong. You see there's some improvement in all of those parts, but it doesn't feel completely cohesive as a, as a sort of as a, as a, as a, from a passenger point of view. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the stations, right? And if you take that, the Cologne-Berlin train that that isn't the Sprinter, yeah. that stops in all those cities along NRV, there's some pretty yeah. dire... There's some pretty dire That's, stations there. Well, like, obviously the worst is, like, Duisburg main station, right? It's <laughs> actually, the architecture's pretty cool, but the thing is falling apart. It's, okay, they, I, I did actually notice the other day they're actually starting to rebuild that one finally, but... but um, You've got to make sure that in all of those pieces, the experience of taking the train is, is a pleasant and safe one for all types of passengers. And in some parts of Germany, you don't quite nail that. Yeah? Um, uh, but on paper, the progress is correct, but I, we're not quite there yet. Right. That's great. I guess just to, to close out, um, I think the, the hot topic in Germany this summer, you know, well, in addition to the, the massive delays that everybody's been fuming about, I don't know, you know, if you're listening to this and you follow basically any German on Twitter, you'll have seen some extremely angry posts about uh, cancellations and delays on Deutsche Bahn. Yeah. The other one, of course, is the, the nine euro ticket, which allowed people to take all of the, the local and regional rail in Germany. Um, we're recording this on August 30th. It'll be out in, in early September. Um, and so we're, we're in the, the final days, the, the twilight of the national nine euro ticket. And it looks like Berlin might uh, restart their own for just the, the local area. You know, there's been some debates about trying to extend it, but it seems like that, that hasn't really been acceptable, especially um, at the national level with the, the FDP side of the current coalition. 
Could you talk a little bit about um, the nine euro ticket and sort of the if, if you know anything about the sort of future prospects of this? Because, you know, yeah. I think some people have said, oh, it's not the best policy because there hasn't the, the statistics on it show that it hasn't really replaced a lot of car trips. Um, it's but mostly just allowed you. people to it's allowed people to travel a lot, which I find like a good in and of itself. Like I know so Fine. many people that have explored really interesting parts of Germany and they've gotten to go totally. on a lot of trips, which I think is a great way to spend a summer. Right. I'd be I, I, curious exactly. your thoughts. And that, that totally nails it, right? That's exactly how I've used it as well, right? I've been to a whole bunch of places outside of Berlin where I never would have, if it would have cost me 20, 30 euros to just make a day trip there, I probably wouldn't have paid it because I wouldn't have known whether it was worth my while. But hell, it was a flat rate. It was nine euros for a month. Let's just hop on the train and go to Wittenberg or, uh, or go to Frankfurt under order or, or different places. Yeah. Now, and also... Do you change people's behavior in a three-month time frame? Well, no, you probably don't. Because if you've made a decision, I'm going to organize my life so as I can go to the office by car, and I've bought the car, I've insured the car, all of those type of things, and they're offering me three months of cheaper transport, am I going to change my behavior in an everyday way? No, probably not. You need to have something that's for a couple of years, at least, in order to manage to make those kind of changes of behavior. Now, it's important to say, why did the Neun Euro ticket come into being this way? Well, it came as a basis on the basis of a messy political compromise. The Liberals said, we want to reduce um, uh, um, petrol prices for car drivers. And the Greens said, well, if you're reducing prices for car drivers, you want to reduce prices for public transport users as well. And after that mass, that messy compromise came the nine euro ticket. There wasn't a really fundamental thinking to say, actually, what are we really trying to achieve here medium term? It was basically, hey, if car drivers get something, public transport users should get something too. That was the basis of how this came about. So it was a mess at the start. And that's what led to a somewhat a mess in the implementation. Now, what have we learned from it? The simplification is the incredible thing. It basically means trying to find out what ticket you even need to take buses, trams, metros, trains, regional trains, long distance trains, whatever, is really, really difficult in Germany. Different tariff zones, different Verkehrsverbunde, these state organizations that determine the ticket prices. And indeed, for you and I based in Berlin normally, that's even comparatively easy because basically Berlin and Brandenburg works mo kind of as one zone. But if you're in Saxony, for example, there are half a dozen different public transport authorities for Sachsen alone, right? Or trying to work out trains to or from Frankfurt is an is absolute nightmare to work out which ticket you would even need. So it's basically saying, hey, let's do away with all of that and just offer public transport at one low flat rate. That itself has been a kind of a revolution, and you can't kind of put that genie back in a bottle. People do not want to go back to that never-ending complexity and calculation yeah. of working out, how the hell do I even get this ticket uh, in order to manage to get from A to B? So that, to me, is, the, is the, the crucial point, is making public transport simple, right? That's the big gain from the nine euro ticket. Now, is nine euro per month for all of Germany a sustainable level financially? Probably not. We've now got the argument about what else could be done instead. Is it going to be solved federally? Is it going to be done locally? Now, a bit the difficulty is, is that there is no real consensus about what to do. And that's part of the reason why no one's been able to kind of bulldoze something through against the opposition of the FDP. Is there's no consensus of saying some people have said we should have a nine euro ticket, but a bit more expensive. There's been proposals for a 29 euro ticket, which I think 
would probably also be workable, right? That's probably still cheap enough for most people to be able to afford it. There'd be other people that well, say compared Google, to a monthly ticket in just Berlin, was this like what, 90, 100, yeah, 100 now? Yeah, 100, like it's something. 100 something. Yeah, yeah. and indeed, if that's, if that's in Hamburg or in, in areas around Frankfurt, then it, it can be up above 200 euros. So something that's 29 euros a month, maybe, and doesn't work Germany-wide, but works in maybe Poland, for example. Although, again, if you start looking at areas where you cross lender boundaries, right, everything around Frankfurt, it's not actually just Hessen. You go very easily to Rheinland-Pfalz, very easy to Baden-Württemberg, very easy to Bayern. So again, where land boundaries are and where people go, that doesn't always work. Um, or you do something like um, like Austria has introduced their so-called climate ticket in Austria, which for a thousand euros a year, you can use everything, including long distance trains, right? So that would include then intercities and ICEs as well, right? Now that's much more expensive, but it covers everything. Now, if you want all of Germany's railways, in a, in a ticket. You can get a barn card 100, which gives you unrestricted use of all trains in Germany. But that's that's more than three and a half thousand euros. I don't know how, exactly how much that is. I've never personally, even though I travel a lot by train, I've never even got close to justifying that one. So the difficulty then is, is there's not really a sort of clear answer about what to do right now. Um, but what and you need to have a kind of flexibility of thinking about tariffs and a flexibility of thinking about federalism, which has often escaped German politics until now, to be quite honest. So I can't give you an answer, unfortunately, of saying that that what will be the follow-up. My fear is, at least initially, from, from 1st of September, everything will just go back to as bad as it was. And then we might have something that there will be something from later in the autumn where there'll be some new tariff above and beyond what is offered by the public transport authorities at a price which is lower than we've got at the moment. That would be my probably my best guess, but not immediately. And it will definitely be an issue which will be on the agenda for the next Bundestag elections due in 20, now 2024, um, because the German parties will push that very, very strongly, particularly the Greens will say, look, after the success of the nine euro ticket, were we to basically control the government, this is one of the things we would act upon. So there is strength for that within the Greens. And very important also in this is we haven't even mentioned the SPD, right? This, this is a policy that comes as a green reaction to an FDP driven policy. What do the Social Democrats really think about this? That's actually quite unknown. Um, and um, because they've just not really put themselves into this debate. Um, so it's very hard to know. So it's fascinating, the nine euro ticket, but it's not, it's, it's been quite a messy experience. And, and if you think about how it started, maybe that's understandable. Yeah. Without a coherent sort of goal, like you said, it's sort of hard right. to be like, yeah, like you said, what, what are we actually trying to do with this? But it's sort of, it, you know, I mean, pe people use the term induced demand in a negative sense in terms of building highways. But in terms right. of with trains, it's like some people complain that they were overcrowded. But like, I don't know, I got to explore a ton of like Brandenburg yeah, yeah. with the bike and the lakes. And totally. it's been I think it's been a really it'll be a really memorable summer for a lot of people. And right. And, and also for, for a lot of those a lot of those towns. Right. Which otherwise struggle to attract tourists. Yeah. Like I, I was in contact on Twitter with the people who do the tourist promotion for Zittau in, in, in Sachsen. They were super happy with it. Suddenly a load of day trippers were coming and visiting their museums and visiting their cafes. Cool. I'm totally fine with that. Um, yeah. Especially uh, with regional inequality being an issue. It seems like a good way to remedy 
idea there. And then, and then Sachsen managed to put like loads of actually even like two tourist railways. I took a steam train in Saxony on the nine euro <laughs> ticket because they realised actually if you include it, you bring a load more people in. Now, I don't know how they did the financial arrangement for the operation of the train, but in all the hotels, the restaurants, the cafes, the museums, or whatever in that region, I'm like okay, come, um, and that's a genuinely good, um, advantageous thing from this experience. Yeah. It worked on the ferry too. I took I took a I took my bike on the ferry outside of Berlin. That was pretty oh, cool. nice. All right, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was, uh, I was like, is this is a nine euro ticket going to work on the ferry? And they were like, yep, no problem. <laughs> uh, I, I, I took one as well across the border into Czechia to a brewery um, in Vladivostok. Oh, nice. That was also a, a, a slightly odd nine euro ticket experience, but super interesting yeah. things. Yeah, but not a universally good experience. Uh, I think yeah, that much yeah. we can say. Okay, well, well, Dalman gedruckt that. Uh, yeah, yeah, you get know, some no, kind no. of replacement oh, for that. Yeah. Um, well, I think that uh, I think that wraps up most of the main topics I had covered. Um, I mean, uh, do you have any, I mean, I know you're constantly working on these projects, but if you sort of let us know anything else you want to promote, I would obviously say John is a great follow on Twitter. We'll, we'll definitely link your, um, uh, your handle there so people can follow you for all sorts of updates and, and commentary on, so, on European rail. But anything else you'd like there's to share? Just, there's just one point that we haven't quite bridged, which is the kind of Germany discussion and the international discussion. All right. Um, yeah. How good or bad is Germany at international rail? Um, it is... I would say kind of somewhere in the mid table in Europe. It's neither the very best, nor is it definitely not the, the, the worst, right? There are many countries which are much, much worse. And Germany has some cross-border railway absurdities. The, the, the most absurd of all is at the border between Görlitz and Zagorzelec to Poland, so in the very southeastern corner um, of, of, of eastern, eastern Germany, where Poland has electrified its railway. So the electrification masts end literally in the middle of the bridge over the Nysa. Uh, and then the line on the German side is diesel. Now, to me, that's quite interesting, right? Because Germans go, well, our infrastructure is fine. And on the Polish side, it must be really decrepit. Actually, in that situation, it's exactly the opposite. The Poles have fixed their stuff and Germany hasn't fixed its side. Uh, and there's another example um, between Warnsdorf in Czechia and Seifhennersdorf in Germany, where the infrastructure is fine on the Czech side and the infrastructure is poor on the German side. Now, having said that, right, more or less in all cases, if there is a track, Germany will run a train on it, right? It's better than nothing, right? Now, in some places in France or in Belgium or in Spain, there'll be tracks with no trains running on them at all. Germany might have decrepit infrastructure, but something will run. Uh, and so that's basically the conclusion from Germany's cross-border rail. Um, and indeed, particularly from Berlin, Brandenburg and Sachsen are trying to do their best to really improve connections towards Poland and towards Czechia, and it's actually quite nice to see. Uh, some of the connections which go more to the West, towards Belgium and towards France, where from Germany it's particularly problematic based on the, the, the research that I've done. Um, so overall, in that regard, to build that kind of bridge between the German and the European thing, uh, yeah, it, you can reach most of Germany's neighbours reasonably well by train um but yeah again there's some room for improvement infrastructure wise then too and from germany as well great yeah that's really really interesting i mean one thing we, we sort of focus on thematically in the podcast is the sort of perceptions of germany um versus versus reality on um, both sort of you know from from outside observers of germany as well as germans themselves and i think uh yeah it's it's kind of funny sometimes like you said you take the the, the train across the border and the other, the infrastructure might actually be better on the other side. And your phone often goes from no service to, to oh, 4G totally. <laughs> to, to, to right away when you get into Poland or the Czech right, Republic. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, totally. Yeah. Uh. yeah. 
Well, great. Um, thanks so much, John. Uh, I think this is no really, problem, really you. fascinating, really interesting. And like I said, we'll we'll link to the page for your project um, as well as your, your Twitter, Twitter handle. And like I said, great, um, great person to, to follow to keep updated on everything. So thanks again. Thank you. Thanks again to John and everybody for listening. As always, we would love it if you could rate, review, share with friends, subscribe to our Patreon to keep the pod up and running. Um, and of course, listen to some bonus content. And you can check out our archive and to kind of tease the new series that we'll be doing um, on each of Germany's neighbor countries. So that should be fun. Yeah, please subscribe. We've done the borders. Now we're doing the real countries. So everything you want to know about weird freak countries like Switzerland and places like that. We're going to cover it. (laughs) We're going to get into it. And yeah, got to pay those energy bills, am I right? Yeah, you got to do it. Like, I mean, it's it's a different, you know, we're... uh, or you, do, you, do you want to hear our jaws chattering while podcasting for the rest of the winter? <laughs> no, no guilt tripping. But you're, uh, for those who do support, we really appreciate it. Anyone else who can uh, would be wonderful. So, yeah, thanks again for listening. And we'll see you soon actually back on the main feed again. We're going to do a, a back-to-back main feed to kind of welcome back things back into the fall with, like I said, another, another form. Another type of bond, but different bond that starts with an a so okay. we're excited <laughs> the 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 bad bond the bad bond the bad yeah. bond i think that's it that's it all right thanks for listening choose choose